Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, we've come as far as chapter 6. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. This chapter deals with two issues. The first half with further divisions in the church, and the second more with sexual immorality. And so with communion today and the time that we have together, we're going to go ahead and split this chapter in two. We're going to focus on the first 11 verses today and then the remainder next Sunday. And so today we're going to look at the uh, further division that had made its way into the Corinthian church. And you're going to see here shortly what was bringing this division. And so let's go ahead for the sake of context this morning. Let's read together in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's go ahead and read through verse 7. Paul writes, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? If you would agree with me in prayer once more, Father, this is your word and we thank you for it. We recognize that you exalt your word above your own name. Lord, this is a treasure. May we, like the psalmist, rejoice together as one who finds great treasure. May we consider your word here this morning, and by your spirit, Lord, give us understanding and help us, Lord, to make application. There are difficult truths here, Lord. It's not an easy thing for us to be cheated or wronged and to respond with grace, but that's what you call us to. And so, Lord, do a work here this morning such that we would receive these things into our hearts and be transformed by it. Thank you, Lord, for our time. Bless it now in Jesus' name. Amen. The Greek playwright Aristophanes, in his play entitled The Clouds, tells of a man looking at a map asking where Greece can be found. When it's pointed out, in great surprise, he suggests there must be a mistake, as he, it is said, cannot see any lawsuits going on there. While this was often Aristophanes' form of comedy, it was his not-so-subtle jab at the litigious culture of Greece. Aristophanes was highlighting a growing problem among his countrymen, their desire to sue one another, often over very frivolous matters that should have been handled differently, especially when pertaining to matters within and among members of the church. 
This trend noted in Aristophanes' play was the very trend that was playing out in the Corinthian church. Sadly, this church was quick to judge sin outside of the church amongst unbelievers, yet proud of tolerating sin within the church, as we learned in the previous chapter. And now, Paul looks to address their seeming inability to handle disputes among themselves without taking the matters before secular courts. As we'll learn, this failure on their part only served to tarnish their reputation among believers and unbelievers alike. Now, it would be one thing if this was simply a history lesson for us this morning. We might say, oh, that's unfortunate. It's too bad that the Corinthians were this way. But I don't think it's lost on many of us that our culture is quite similar today. During the 20th century, the number of lawyers in the United States, and mind you, I have some friends who are lawyers, okay? This is not an indictment today on lawyers, okay? But these facts give us some insight. During the 20th century, the number of lawyers in the United States grew 793%. From 114,460 registered attorneys to well over a million today. Since 2010... The legal profession has grown nearly twice as fast as the nation's population at a rate of 12.4% compared to 6.3% for the general population according to a 2019 survey. The vast majority of the world's attorneys reside in the United States. And I think we all know they're not here on vacation. It's based on demand. Going all the way back to 1982. 1982. Some of you think that was just yesterday. And it wasn't when you do the math. Going all the way back to 1982, Warren Berger, Chief Justice of the United States, said, One reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties. Remedies, he says, for personal wrongs that once were considered the responsibility of institutions other than the courts are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements. The courts, he says, have been expected to fill the void created by the decline of church, family, and neighborhood unity. The chapter before us is about the ability that the church should have to solve basic problems. To be clear, what is not in view in this chapter are matters that require the involvement of the law. There are times when a church, out of respect for governing authorities, should involve the legal authorities. I think one of the most significant examples of this would be a now long pattern in history of various abuses, including sexual abuse within the church that has seemingly been overlooked and even hidden with the intention of trying to keep it in-house to preserve reputation. That would be a prime example of when a church should say the authorities are going to be involved. Yet there are other times when Seemingly insignificant matters, especially in comparison, are not handled amongst the believers, but rather drugged before the secular courts. This is the distinction here that's being made. 
Now, what is in view here in this chapter, once again, are the basic matters that brothers and sisters in Christ should be able to handle in-house. Stephen Um asks the question, how are believers to relate to one another when someone has been wronged? How does a gospel-shaped community handle disputes and grievances between believers? Paul gives us the answer in this chapter. In fact, the late justice Antonin Scalia knew something of Paul's answer. He wrote regarding this very passage saying that I think this passage has something to say about the proper Christian attitude towards civil litigation. Paul is making, Scalia said, two points. First, He says that the mediation of a mutual friend, such as the parish priest or pastor, should be sought before parties run off to the law courts. Scalia says, I think we are too ready today to seek vindication or vengeance through adversarial proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, he says, just as they are slow to anger, should be slow to sue. Scalia is right. And his view aligns with Paul's as expressed in this passage. But as we begin to consider it, might I say that like much of what Paul has addressed thus far in this letter to the church in Corinth, the issue is less with the specific example provided and more about the motive or the issue behind it. In this case, yes, Corinthian believers are taking one another to court over issues that they shouldn't. But the bigger picture, and we'll, we, we know very little, quite frankly, about this particular issue. Rather, what we see here, just like even last week when we consider matters of church discipline, and, and, and though Paul certainly was addressing the specific sin that he mentions in 1 Corinthians 5 and by no means supports it, the bigger picture was that they were tolerating sin. It wasn't the specific sin itself. And in this case, while yes, he's going to address a brother who's taken a brother to court, it's less about that specific matter and the bigger picture that these believers are behaving in a way that's not befitting fitting someone who professes to know Christ. Rather, in both cases, whether it's church discipline and how we handle sin, or whether it's here and handling various matters, we're to do so with a heart of grace. In fact, what we'll see in Paul's instruction to us today is that justice is is most achieved when grace is extended. And this is the view that we must have of this passage. And so once again, then, what we see here is that these believers are engaging in a way that's not in line with who they are. And so it can also be said then, as we've said many times now of these Corinthian believers, is that they've forgotten who they are. There is an identity issue at play here in the church in Corinth. This was an issue of identity. Knowing who we are as Christians should make all the difference in how we live and act. And that's part of what we'll see Paul communicate today as well. Let's go back to the word again here, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Paul effectively says, if it's not clear to you, he says, how dare you? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't, people don't often talk to me that way. 
I don't hear regularly, how dare you, right? If you hear, if you're like, I'm familiar with that, you might want to evaluate how you're carrying yourself, right? The point there being, when somebody says, how dare you, they're expressing that they're offended by your actions, that, that what you've done is, is, is rather audacious. They're surprised by your behavior. And Paul is saying this to the church in Corinth, how dare you? Now we should ask Paul, why are you so incensed? Because for Paul, he recognizes here that believers who have been justified by the Lord are bringing disputes that they should be able to handle before most likely an unbelieving magistrate who's functioning in the Corinthian marketplace, which means that the case is going to be public. And people just like today who want to watch Judge Judy as much back then are like, I'm entertained by this. And so then, they're... they're impacting their witness they're not considering who they're representing and paul's perhaps even greater concern is do you care do you care about your reputation and your witness and your testimony before a lost world from the beginning of the letter paul had been addressing the divisions that existed within the church and he had argued that things were to be different for them that things are to be different for believers. The fact is, the church is to be a gospel community. A gospel community that functions differently than the world. We've seen God's wisdom is different than man's wisdom. We've seen that, that these two things do not align the natural man and the spiritual man. So what of the brothers who can't solve an issue between them and need instead to go before the world to solve it? What does that communicate about how special and different this gospel community is? What do we want the world to think of his church or to see within his church? Play this out. Hey, friend, unbeliever, you need Jesus in your life. Why don't you come to church with me? It's a wonderful place. It's great. We're all fighting about what teacher is the best. We're tolerating unrepentant habitual sin. And when we have disagreements with one another, we don't trust God's word or his work in our lives. Instead, we just run off and take it before the courts. It's a wonderful thing. You've got to check it out. We know that's silly. That's foolish. We think to ourselves, well, nobody's going to want to get on board with that. But this is exactly how the Corinthian church was acting. And sadly, it's very similar to many churches today. Paul simply can't believe it. And albeit rhetorically, he begins to ask them questions geared towards helping them understand what kind of people they're called to be. Verses 2-4, through four, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? What Paul begins to address here is the identity issue that has gotten them into this mess. And it's the same identity issue that gets us into trouble and off track today. They had forgotten who they are. 
At the very beginning of the letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul had said to them, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, from the very beginning, is seeking to establish for these believers that they are new creations in Christ and that they have been set apart, they've been made different. So their lives then are to be lived differently, not the same as the world. And the same is true of us. And any letter written to our fellowship could read the exact same way. You are saints, set apart, different. Do we know what this means about who we are? Paul says it means that you're a part of a community. Both a future community and a present community. And this community has privilege and responsibility. In our future community, this is mind-blowing. As we reign with Christ, yes, reign with Christ, we will have responsibility to judge even angels. We need to think about that. Thanks. Wow. Exactly. Now, this is probably referring to fallen angels who rebelled against God. Unless you think judgment here is sort of like, oh, I get to dish out a sentence to them and I'm going to have my vengeance. And so, no, this is about judging a matter. This is about having the ability to look at a situation and go, this is what's right. This is what is wrong. And here's what needs to happen as a result of that. It's having proper insight into these matters. And so what Paul wants us to understand here is, look, in the future, Christian, You're going to be a part of judging supernatural things on a global scale. You don't think for a moment you can figure out with a brother how to work through an issue? This is why he's disappointed. And time and time again we prove, no, we we can't. We struggle with this. He says this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. So then also, he says, it's not just about what's happening in the future, but rather presently, if we're going to one day handle matters of such eternal importance, then let's focus on if we have judgments to be made today, let's do it in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Our first lesson this morning based off of what Paul is instructing us in here would be this, Christian, remember your calling in Christ. Remember your calling in Christ. It's far more even than just the fact that today you can say, I'm saved. That in and of itself is absolutely worth praising and thanking God. But His grace is so abundant that the implication is there's more. There's a future for you. There's a role for you. So consider your calling. Consider what He is making you into. Paul says you're going to go to the least qualified which probably speaks of an unbelieving judge who doesn't understand matters of the church or how to handle matters with grace befitting of believers. And so Paul here is not shying away from saying that this is shameful. That is, that not understanding and then living in the identity that God has for you and instead continuing to look to the world as your resource and your solution is shameful for a Christian. Verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you 
not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? I'm not out of time yet. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? So Paul once again makes clear that it makes no sense and is entirely disappointing that believers would be unable to solve matters amongst themselves and be forced to take these things before unbelievers. And as he expresses this, really what becomes the bigger question here is, do you not believe that the gospel... God's ways and His work in you are big enough to overcome this situation. You see, when we run to the world to solve our problems, and again, remember, if there is a crime, if the law has been broken, well, then involve the authorities by all means. Do the right thing. But when we run to the world to solve our problems, what we communicate is that God's ways are insufficient. Is that what we want to communicate, Christian? Are we intending to communicate that God's ways, His Word, is is just not quite enough to handle this situation? The very existence of this lawsuit and their bringing this matter before the lost was grounds to call into question everything that this supposed set-apart and different community was all about. So then what we see is Paul begins to make it clear that this is about witness. This is about testimony. And what he says is really for either brother who had wronged the other and wins their case, what have they really gained? Paul says in verse 7, Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Paul tells them that their efforts have already failed. No matter who supposedly wins in the eyes of the secular courts, you've lost because you have misrepresented the community of Christ And it's really a disturbing thing today to see professing believers so fueled by anger and hatred seeking to take church matters into the court system that they fail to even realize that their potential victory simply means their failure. Their failure to live up to their identity in Christ and the fact that they've made a mockery of the local gospel community in the process. That's a failure. And the church should not be engaged in such matters. This brings us to our second lesson this morning, and it's this. When we seek victory the world's way, we lose every time. When we seek victory the world's way, we lose every time. God calls us to a higher ethic. It's an ethic that often does not make sense. But praise God, as we go through that sanctification process, His ways make sense more and more. Paul asks them, why not rather be wronged or cheated? Well, those are difficult questions. We're not quick to respond with, a, oh yeah, yeah, good point. Are we? No, we don't, we don't want to be wronged. We don't want to be cheated. That's a difficult thing for us to be confronted with. And most often when we are, we cry out, that's not fair. That's not right. But as we do, if we're honest, truly as we look at this, as we do... 
If we are crying out that it's not fair or we've been wronged and we're going to take action, we're going to get what's ours or whatever the case may be, what we communicate is that whatever the wrong is that's been done to us, that thing is more our identity than Christ is. Money, relationships, property, possessions. These are, these are the things that too many believers are rooting their identity in. And we can know this because when those things are threatened, what does it create within us? Does it create an attitude that's willing to respond in grace and mercy? Or does it create defenses? Does it create an attitude of self-righteousness? And if it does, then we can find ourselves defending the very idol that we didn't want to admit existed. I'm not saying this is easy, but it's the work that we're called to. It's the attitude that we're called to. And you see, the secular court system, although good in many ways, and praise God for our own country and how certain aspects of it have been established, the fact of the matter is the whole thing's built on fostering a sense for someone of, I am right. I am justified. I've done no wrong. I'm righteous, and the other person is not. And we spend our time building our case. And we've all got pretty good inner lawyers as it is. We don't need a whole lot of help. This isn't the way of Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 5, 39 through 42 says, But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. And so often we're quick to go, yeah, but... We often dismiss some of the most difficult passages of Scripture, find ways to explain it away, figure out how it's no longer culturally relevant so that we don't have to be bound to it. This is Jesus who gives us this ethic, and yes, it's hard. But friends, the words of Jesus capture what grace does when it radically invades our hearts. The fact is, in God's kingdom, justice is achieved when grace abounds. It challenges our senses. It so often doesn't make sense. But it's the way that He works. It can be difficult for us to understand and even to embrace, but often only in so much as our sense of justice and even more so our identity is still rooted in this world. When you begin to live more in the place that you are intended to, you keep your eyes on heaven, you focus on the things of Him, you, you live for eternity, the things here that you may be wronged over suddenly are less and less important. Listen, the church as we see it in chapter 5, should take sin seriously. And in the same way, here in chapter 6, we should address wrongs. It's not here, the argument is not that we just overlook everything. It's, oh, no big deal. But rather, we should look to handle the matters in the way that the Word of God instructs. We should remember who God has called us to be and how He has called us to handle things. Matthew 18 is a wonderful passage that we considered last week that would apply in this setting as well that encourages us to, look, take steps to work through this together. 
for us to understand and remember that we are sinners saved by grace who are called to extend grace. It's often been said the forgiven should be forgiving. But as we've considered often over the last several weeks, we struggle with grace amnesia. We forget it so quickly. Verses 8-10, through 10, Paul says, No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says here in verse 8 that these Corinthian believers are the ones who are doing wrong and they're cheating and he wants them to understand that such behavior is not befitting of those who are truly saved and born again. And so then Paul gives us a list of various sins. Some of these, of course, we look at and some of these sins stick out more than others, which is unfortunate because they're all sin. And these sins that Paul lists in the Greek language and in the tense He's referring to those who are in habitual sin. He's saying that these that, that people who are practicing these things, they're in willful disobedience. They have made these things the pattern of their lives. They're living in this sin. But this is certainly grounds to question, do they really know Jesus at all? Now these verses will serve to inform and aid our understanding of the remainder of this chapter, and so we'll revisit these next week as we look to understand the rest of this passage. But for the sake of today, they really present us with a question, and I think it's a question that Paul wants us to ask, is, is are you in the world or are you in the church? Which one is it? Are you a new creation or are you the old one? Or as Leonard Ravenhill liked to ask, are you dead to sin or dead in sin? As he said, there's only one option. There's nowhere in between. This becomes the question when professing believers are unable to pursue unity. When we're unable to resolve issues. When we look to the world to do what the gospel can do better when we fail to comprehend and extend grace, in such situations, if we're truly born again, then we need reminded of our identity in Christ. And praise God, Paul does that in verse 11, as he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says, you were once this way, Christian, but not anymore. Amen? Praise God. We were once, we can look at those things and say, yeah, I remember. Oh, but I'm not that way anymore. This is our third lesson for this morning. Christian, you must remember your new God-given identity. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. This is who you are. Do you know that? 
And so because of who we are, then we must live like that. I wonder this morning as you're hearing this and you're reading this, maybe you're beginning to think, man, have I been wronged? Or has another wronged me? Maybe, maybe you're thinking, have I been withholding forgiveness? Or do I need to make amends to make this situation right? Are we holding on to our individual sense of justice, what someone owes us, what they need to do to make it right? And if you are beginning to think about these things, praise God. You may not like it, but it's a good thing when conviction still comes. When we hear from the Lord and we say, okay, I need to make this right. Because the question would be asked, can we not address these issues with one another and then forgive, extending grace? Do we need to be reminded of the grace that was demonstrated toward us? Sometimes we forget how it is that we were washed, sanctified, and justified. The very symbols of this are before us today as we take communion together this morning. His body and His blood, that's what it took. Paul reminds us of this elsewhere in Romans 5, first in verses 1 and 2, and then 6 and 8, I would highlight this morning. Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He continues, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely, he says, for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is that justice? Is that fair? The way I look at things, no, it's not. But from God's perspective, it is. He says it is finished. The debt's been paid. What if God's perspective were in fact ours? How might we differ in some of our encounters with one another? What might we today let go of? What might we lay down and say, it's not worth it. I don't need to worry about this anymore. Who might we be able to go to and say, hey, I love you. I forgive you. I'm going to invite the worship team up to lead us in song as we prepare to take communion. And communion, as we considered last week, is an opportunity for self-examination. It's an opportunity for mourning our sin, as we looked at in 1 Corinthians 5, but it's also, for the sake of today, an opportunity for us to consider the body that we are a part of, the community that we're in and the unity that should define such a community. Communion is a regular opportunity, if done well, to wake up and evaluate our walk. And today, to consider what this celebration means for who we are. 
what our identity now is and what that means for how we should live our lives, especially before a lost world. As we often do, the ushers will release you by row, invite you to come and receive the elements, encourage you to return then to your seat and continue in prayer and worship and meditation over these things. Our table is open to all those who know Jesus. And today I would challenge you on this as we prepare to take. Consider your calling in Christ. What does it mean to be called saints, Christian? What does it mean to be sanctified, set apart? What does it do in you as you consider the future that He has for you? Have you given thought to what it means that you belong to Him? And how you're to live your life and handle different situations, especially issues between brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we looking to God and His ways to solve issues, or are we still leaning on our own understanding in the ways of the world? We're called to remember who we are today. Not who you were, but who you are. A saint. Loved by Him. Desires to use you for His glory. And so as much as any of this today may weigh heavy upon your hearts, praise God that because of what we celebrate here, it's taken care of. And because of the Spirit that indwells you, you're able to move forward and to say, I, wanna, I want these things to be different. I want to change these things. You don't need to leave here today with a sense of, of, of feeling forlorn over this but rather to to remember this is who i am in christ you can go forward with confidence knowing that he will do this work in you and that you can live differently before the world as we take today let's consider who christ has made us to be and determine together to walk in that new identity amen let's pray father as we seek now to partake in communion your supper, Lord, that is so special. Lord, may we be reminded that because of you, Lord Jesus, we've been washed. We've been sanctified. We are justified by you, Lord Jesus, through the Spirit of God. As we partake together today, may this be something, Lord, that's pleasing to you. May it be done in a right manner. And Lord, we know that Your Word instructs us that for that to be done, we must do some self-examination to allow Your Spirit to search our hearts, to reveal, Lord, if there's anything in us not of You, anything that needs to be dealt with. And we have this opportunity today to, to deal with it. And so, Lord, do that work here now, I pray. May we have willing and open hearts such that You could search and know and reveal. And so, Father, bless this time of communion here this morning. And if there's anyone here amongst us or perhaps watching online and you've yet to surrender your life to Christ, make today that day of salvation. And cry out to Him and tell Him what's on your heart. Make today the day where you say to God the Father, I know that you sent your Son Jesus to die for me. I know that you love me. You died for my sins, and so, Lord, forgive me. I repent of my sins. I want to live my life for you. Invite him to come into your life and to rule and reign. Make today the day where you take communion and right standing before him. 
Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you meet us right where we are and minister to us in this way. Bless this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week. So make sure that you are subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.